It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at NewEraCap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. We are getting down to the nitty-gritty episode 12 of Memories with Voos. A's longtime equipment manager Steve Vucinich retiring after 54 years with the club, began back in 1968 during the club's inception that year. And, Boos, we've kind of traveled through a few of the decades, and we got to, to the 1990 World Series, which left a bad taste in the mouth. Uh, you know, the ball club is the third straight World Series and uh, only won one of them, which was the 89 Series against the, uh, the San Francisco Giants. But I'm just curious, as we, as we, move, as we move forward into the, uh, into the 90s, into that decade, from 1968 to that point, can you explain the evolution, you know, from from your your vantage point of the players, maybe of the game itself, uh, what it was like inside clubhouses? How much did that change over that time period? Well, I think uh, with building some new stadiums in the 70s, a lot of the amenities for the players have changed. Uh, the clubhouses were were bigger. Uh, there were more a lot more amenities in there. The trainers' room was bigger. They added, started adding weight rooms probably in the 80s. Uh, as far as the players themselves, uh, there's no doubt that they were making more money, so a lot of them didn't have to take off-season jobs, and that was a big thing. So they could concentrate on baseball 12 months a year if they wanted to. Uh, the advent of weight training and the acceptance of baseball, that was not accepted for years. And I remember your partner, Ray Fossey, didn't do weights, but he did isometrics, which is just a, a strengthening for the arms and things in different parts of the body. There were zero weight rooms. The thought in baseball was it would be too restrictive if they became too muscle-bound. So that was a big change in there. Uh, obviously, late 60s, early 70s, the evolution of more colorful uniforms. That came about. Uh, the players themselves, uh, there, were, there was, seems like there was more movement with the rosters players coming up and down uh back in the 60s and early 70s a trading deadline for interleague was like uh, it was either december 15th or january 15th and you couldn't move players in between the leagues without waivers at that time and that's because the two leagues operated independently for a while the San the national league office was based in san francisco because chubb feeney was the president American League office at one time was based in Boston because of Joe Cronin and later moved to New York. Uh, so they were operated independently, and that was a big reason why one league went to the designated hitter in 73 when the National League chose not to. 
the American League was the first to jump out on it, and I think the National League was hesitant after that because they'd been beaten to the punch. Expansion in 69 with four teams at one time, Montreal, Kansas City, Seattle, and San Diego. So that added another 100 players to the big leagues. And in that year, 69, they figured the pitching was diluted, and there were a lot of home runs hit that year. Uh, Reggie finished third with 47, although he had 37 at the All-Star break. So there, it, it was really a decade of changes. Uh, but maybe you look back at every decade, there are changes. But I would think there are fewer changes in the 50s than there were in the 60s and the 70s. As, as you move into the decade of the 90s, uh, when Ricky Anderson got to the big leagues, he made an immediate impact. It took him like two or three years to break the single season record for stolen bases at a, with 130, broke Luke Brock's record then. And then the march began, you know, keeping, you know, certainly seeing the kind of player that Ricky was that it was inevitable that he was going to become the man of steel. And it finally happens uh, in 1991, early in 1991 in May. Can you remind us of what that time was like, Luke Brock coming, but just leading up to that and what that meant to Ricky, what that meant to the organization and uh, seeing uh, that type of record eclipsed uh, here at the Coliseum? Well, everybody knew Ricky was going to break the record. There's no way he wasn't. Funny thing was, he broke the record, stole 130 bases in 82, and that was a down year for us. And now he's breaking the all-time stolen base record in 91, and that also was a down year for us. So uh, Ricky gathered a lot more attention uh, because the club wasn't doing so well. But uh, everybody knew he was going to do that. Lou Brock, <laughs> I think he got tired of following us around. It was a relief to him when Ricky finally did steal third base against the Yankees. And... Uh, uh, it was a relief to him. He didn't have to travel anymore. Ricky knew he was going to get the record. And uh, I don't know if he rehearsed that speech he had at third base, but it was so beautiful Ricky, so vintage Ricky, that uh, everybody loved it. And, and that, that's a record I don't think will ever be broken, just like the 130 stolen bases that he got in the 82 in a single season. When you're around a club for 54 years, there are countless stories that, that come to mind, and there are certainly unique moments. And I've I look back in 92, yes, the A's get to the postseason and they take on the Toronto Blue Jays, but but leading up to that, Jose Canseco is standing in the on-deck circle. And next thing you know, he's not an Oakland A anymore. Uh, he was a bash brother, certainly, with Mark, and you know he had had good times and bad times with the A's. He's standing in the on-deck circle, and then, then what happens with Jose Canseco becoming a Texas Ranger? You know what? That's probably not one of the more beautiful moments in Oakland A's history. Uh, it's kind of sad he was pulled off the on-deck circle, but they didn't want him to go in there and go hit and maybe even get hurt. So Tony pulled him back. The reason that trade was made back then wasn't so much getting rid of Conseco. We were hurting for pitching then. And that trade came Bobby Witt, Jeff Russell, who was a closer for the Rangers, and uh, Ruben Sierra. And uh, Eck was hurt at that time. We didn't know if he was coming back for postseason or not. So that's why we needed Russell. So to sweeten the deal, and some people were down on Conseco at the time. They threw him in, and he was, wasn't just a throw-in for for Texas. I mean, he was a main cog in that trade. But uh, we had to include him to get the pitching that we needed and figured the offensive offset would have been acquiring Ruben Sierra. So it was really strange. I think we went into the press lounge, and they had a press conference while the game was going on. Uh, Greg Papa was doing a game on TV, and they had an inset about what's going on in a press conference. Then that got a little more important, so the 
the full screen, went to the press conference, and the game was a little inset on the screen. And uh, Papa talking about the trade. And I think Conseco was in a daze. I really believe that. He he knew what was going on, but he was just stunned by it all. So uh, what makes it sad about that trade is the fact that it happened with him being in the lineup, being in the on-deck circle, and being pulled from it. It's, it's it's different these days, right? I mean, you you hear about it, you know, either you know after a game or early in early in the day, well before a team is ready to even show up at the ballpark, so the the player can begin the process of joining whatever that new team might be. You know, and and when trades are done nowadays, before they're announced, the medical people have to go through all the medicals, and they don't get that until the trade is at least agreed upon. And I'm not sure what the protocol was back in 92 on that. That might have had something to do with it. But uh, and it, it was probably Texas probably checking out Conseco more than anything else. Yeah, but it's it's not done that way anymore, thank God. And you, you face the Blue Jays, as, as and we learned after the fact. I mean, the Blue Jays win back-to-back World Series, so they were a very talented team back then. And the A's losing five. And then there's this, this stretch of – of, I don't want to say darkness, but just tough times for the A's based on the success they had just come out of. Uh, what was what was happening with the organization at that point? Well, uh, Dave Stewart was a free agent, so we lost him. Uh, it's funny because Toronto admitted and Stu said he was told that when he pitched that gem in game five to send the series back to Toronto, which is a seven-game series at the time, and we were down. We were we, we had won the first game. We lost the next three. We were down 3-1. And the club was down. You could just feel it. And Stu stepped up, and he won that game for us. That's Monday afternoon in, in Oakland. And that's the reason with his guts and determination that Pat Gillick said he went out and signed him. So we lose Stu. Um, uh, we had re-signed Steinbeck to a four-year contract, McGuire to a five-year contract, and Ruben Sierra, a five-year contract starting the 93 season. So those guys were intact, but I think the pitching hurt us more than anything. We lost Mike Moore, I think, also that same year. So uh, uh, we went into the next couple of years with some veterans, but uh, they just didn't play that well. And I'm not saying guys were were getting tired or, or washing up because everybody I'm going to talk about, McGuire and those guys went on to still have good productive years. Isn't it interesting the way you're, you're mentioning things that happened in the 90s, these multi-year long-term deals that were consummated by the Oakland Athletics, which is something people look at in today's game. They, they see a, a team like Oakland that doesn't do that very often. Well, you know, it's funny. It's 1990. We had the highest payroll in baseball. I think it was only like 23 or 25 million. But we, the Oakland A's had the highest payroll. It shows you how the discrepancies and the widening between because of TV contracts and other things, uh, attendance, that uh, it's it's now it could be $150 million apiece apart from the lowest to the highest. When Tony La Russa walked out of the door uh, as manager of the A's, when that when the door closed behind him, what happened? What, what, the end of an era, certainly, and, and a change for the athletics. Well, that was the uh, takeover by the Schott and Hoffman ownership group. And I think they met with Tony and said, hey, we need to strip this down. We need to trade a bunch of guys. We need to get younger. We can't get any older. And I think Tony didn't didn't want to do that. Uh, I don't know if he had a choice, but uh, uh, 
he wasn't in in favor of rebuilding completely. So he gets an opportunity to go on to St. Louis. I know uh, the Cardinals were for sale at that time by the brewery. And if they could get Tony La Russa, that'd be a feather in your cap and make the franchise uh, not more valuable, but probably a little more attractive. And so he goes to St. Louis and uh, now we go through the interview process. And uh, I think it came down to Art Howe and Jim Lefevre at the time with uh, Art winning out. So Art brings in uh, different coaching staff. I think there might've been a couple advancements like Brad Fisher from the minor leagues up to the big league staff. Brings in Duffy Dyer, Bob Cluck, uh, Denny Walling, and Ron Washington, all fabulous baseball guys. So we're, we're more in a teaching mode now going into uh, 96. And uh, our one loss record wasn't the best, but uh, we, we could see some guys coming in the minor leagues. You started watching guys in A ball and double A for the future. What did you know of Art Howe before he became manager of the A's? Well, I, I had him as a coach with Texas, and that's how I got to know Art. Very pleasant individual, very soft-spoken. But when you did talk to him, he knew his baseball. Uh, and that's why he had already managed the Houston Astros and uh, uh, I think had some success there. But uh, um, I thought he was a great baseball man. I think he was the right choice at the time. You, you mentioned the coaching staff, great teachers, and taking nothing away from all the names you mentioned. But clearly we saw it time and time again, and especially when he returned to the A's, you know, decades later, uh, Ron Washington. Uh, I knew Wash when he was still playing at age 37 in AAA in 1989, still believed he should be in the big leagues playing for somebody. He always had that chip on his shoulder, but in a positive way. He truly believed in himself, and it seems like he always pushed that. Once he hit the coaching button, he pushed that into his, into his students, if you will. When you're watching Ron even back then, it's the same Ron Washington we see in 2021, isn't it? Very much so. I had Ron in a visiting clubhouse with both Minnesota and Cleveland, and he was a funny guy, uh, sit there and smoke his cigarettes when should half the team smoked at the time. But now when, when it kind of shocked me, I didn't have any, have any idea who our coaches were going to be. It had been decided, and I think I was out of town on vacation. And they mentioned him, and it kind of surprised me but I knew he had been, I think, a pretty good infield instructor in the Mets minor league and, and had managed him with the Mets. So uh, he comes on and uh, unbelievable work ethic. He'd take the infielders out every morning at Phoenix Stadium, go out about 8 o'clock in the morning when they didn't have to be on the field till some 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Worked very, very hard. Players would try to kid with Ron, and Ron would give it right back to him in, his, in their faces. So uh, well accepted, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's successful as a manager in Texas. I, I'm guessing that the, the final closing of the door of the A's from the back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back World Series and then getting one more chance in 92 in the postseason was when Mark McGuire was traded to the Cardinals in the middle of, of 97. You mentioned the, the long-term deal, but this, this was a, a pretty significant chip at that time, and at least on paper, it seemed like the A's were going to get something back in return. How are those moments unfolding in real time? Well, it's funny is the All-Star game was in Cleveland that year, and I was back there working the American League team. And I flew back with uh, with uh, Mark and on the same flight back to San Francisco the day after the, after the game. And we were talking, and he says, it's inevitable I'm going to be traded. He expected to. It was the only chance for the A's to get anything in return. And what looked like, a, you know, a pretty good lineup of three pitchers we were getting because we needed pitching at the time. 
it didn't come to complete fruition. Uh, T.J. Matthews lasted longer than uh, uh, Ludwig and um, and Blake Stein, but uh, uh, it was inevitable he's going to get traded. So uh, he just wishes it could have been made then because he could have didn't have to go all the way cross country because right after the All-Star game, we play a few games and we go all the way back to the East Coast. And <clears throat> we're in New York when that trade is done. And I think the Cardinals are in Philadelphia, so he flew there. And he was going to be a free agent. He's putting up big, big numbers. But he liked it so much in St. Louis, he told his agent, get a deal done. That was probably earlier, mid-September. And uh, before the end of the season, they announced an extension for him. And he was real happy. It, uh, the pitchers we got, a couple of them came to the big leagues right away. And, uh, you know, they're with us for a couple of years. But when you trade a superstar like that, I don't believe you ever get true value in return. You know, when, when you think back on Mark leaving the Oakland franchise and what he accomplished with Sammy Sosa in 98, that other things he went through off the field with the, the discussion and his admitting to using performance-enhancing drugs, he said to help with injuries and whatnot. But just recently here at the Coliseum when he was inducted into the Oakland A's Hall of Fame and, and putting on that green jacket, even though he had you know, spent a lot of time with the Cardinals and the Cardinals did the same thing for him, uh, you saw him you know, returning to Oakland. How much did that mean to Mark McGuire? Let me tell you, it meant more to him than I would have ever thought so. I thought it was just another day and he could be around the ballpark, something he loved. He'd been coaching uh, with the Dodgers and the Padres. But I, he was deeply touched by that, as, and I'm sure that he was when he was with St. Louis in their Hall of Fame. But it really meant something to him, and, he, and, and it was good to see him smile about that and be happy about it and have his kids with him and his wife. and They all enjoyed the induction ceremonies, too. Uh, it's funny because he got traded to St. Louis, and just after he got there, Terry Steinbeck had only had a four-year deal after the 92 season. He signed a free agent deal back with his hometown Minnesota Twins, and he called Mark and said, hey, St. Louis has some of the great pitching in the league right now. It'd be worth it for you to go there and be happy there. And Mark went there, and obviously he's happy and flourished there. What, what's your first encounter with Billy Bean, the baseball player? Well, he came in with um, came in with Minnesota first, I think. Right. Minnesota, Detroit, yeah. You know, just talking, Billy's a guy that just opened up to anybody. And uh, we started talking. There was a concert next door in the arena. And he said, is it sold out? Can we buy tickets? I said, let me see what I can do. And I made some calls. I can't remember who the concert was, and, but Billy could tell you. And uh, I got him two free tickets. And I don't know, I guess that uh, cemented our relationship right from about the first two days we'd ever met. And uh, so uh, then he comes over to us, and he's trying to be, become a catcher, too, uh, with us. <laughs> He's with us. He's he's with us in the World Series in '89, and um, but he's not eligible. But he's traveling with us. And Billy was very uh, insightful. He was watching things behind the scenes. You could see that he was watching how Tony operated, how what the coaches did, and so forth. So the next year in spring training, he uh, is not going to make the club. I think our third catcher at the time was Jamie Court, or second catcher. And so we started talking about being an advanced scout. He became an advanced scout and got into the front office that way. Smart baseball man, obviously. So uh, he enjoyed going right into the front office, taking off the uniform and picking up a pen and pad. When you, when you look, on the, uh, look back on the A's franchise, and Billy learned under Sandy Alderson, 
you know, Sandy did come back here recently, although he's now with the Mets, but he came back, you know, as an advisor to Billy and David and just being around this ball club again, which is probably as good for him as it was for the A's. What, what was that group like together, that synergy? You know, it was great for me because in the sparse conditions of the Coliseum before we moved up to the Raider locker room, everybody hangs out in my office. So I had Billy hanging in my office for a long time. Paul DiBodessa, David's been in there. And Sandy had nowhere else to go, so he'd sit in my office. We'd talk about old times. We'd talk about what's going on in the game today. I'd ask him questions about his years in the commissioner's office, uh, about running the Mets as a general manager, and also his years in San Diego. So we bannered back, back and forth and probably three of the smartest baseball people together at one time last year. And I know a lot of clubs have other Ivy League general managers and Ivy League assistant general managers, but uh, our guys seem to get it. And we always say, did he get it? He got it. They got it. What was the transition like for you, Steve, going from the visiting side to then, you know, to the home side full time when, you know, after Frank Sinchek? It was kind of written in stone that I was going to do that. I mean, I won't say written in stone, but it was uh, kind of well known. And uh, uh, I can't say I was waiting around because I was very happy to visit a clubhouse. Heck, every time you, if there's somebody on a team you don't like, they're gone in three days. <laughs> and you go to the home side and they're there for a six plus months. <laughs> but uh, it was a transition and just at the right time because. 20 years in a visiting side, I knew everybody in the league, but I was ready for a change, a challenge to how the job could be done. No disrespect to Frank, but how the job might be able to get done better. Uh, we were just bringing in computers at the time, so I was using that. Uh, Major League Baseball was solidifying deals with the uniform companies for trade amounts, and we had to use certain pieces, and that would come on board. That was all new. And just being with the guys for uh, six-plus months, and I had a young daughter, and so I knew that was going to be tough on me. Not, you know, I was a year; she was a year old when I got that position. But uh, uh, the travel is easy. Everybody, it's just being away from the family. So I enjoyed the transition, the challenge, and uh, the travel. What was the first year? My first year was '94. It's funny because this leads into something I was going to say. I was on the job for four years before, on my fourth year before it was a regular year, because 94, we had a big strike. 95, we had to replace the players. And 96, we opened the season in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until my fourth year that I had a regular season, 1997. Look, you grew up in the area. You were a teenager working for the A's, and you touch on starting the year in Vegas because they're constructing Mount Davis out here. You knew the Coliseum as it was. And when that concrete was being poured in that edifice, which should be exploded, but that's another another show, another episode. When that edifice, you know, was finally constructed for the Raiders, how much did that hurt uh, a local kid like Frank, like Steve Usinich? Well, you know what? I, I mean, I grew up hoping they'd build a Coliseum. This is long before the A's relocated because I was the biggest Raider fan. And I used to go to get Raider games at Candlestick Park, and then they had a temporary bleacher-only stadium at Frankie Old Field, which is where Laney College is currently. And so because of the success of the Raiders and Al Davis, they built the Coliseum, and they were building it just like all the other cookie-cutter stadiums, so it was multi-purposed. Um, when they go to change it like that, it's funny. Peter Gammons in the mid-'80s called the Coliseum the best baseball stadium because there was so much happening. We were drawing good crowds. Uh, it was a happy place to go. We had decent uh, teams. 
Uh, and then to see it now, is they're calling it the worst place to play baseball. I, I don't agree with that, but uh, it, it hurt to see the change. And knowing some of the construction people that worked on it, I don't want to be in that center field structure if there's an earthquake because I heard there are shortcuts taken uh, to get the thing done. They had some sort of quick dry cement that only somebody, a friend of Al Davis's, had a patent to. And uh, I don't want to be over there if it starts shaking. Uh, unfortunately, it changed the Coliseum. It changed the dynamics. The ball still dies in the outfield, so that didn't affect that much. We added a club. Uh, about the only thing the A's gained out of that movement up there, we've got a batting cage. We had never had a batting cage before. So they took away the old exhibit hall. That's where they put the Raiders clubhouse where we dress currently, and we got a batting cage out of it. La-di-da, that's all we got with all, the, with all the headaches we had. We had a game start. You know, They were working 18 hours a day on that structure. We had a game start, and all of a sudden, all the emergency lighting in the Mount Davis structure in the sky boxes, which are three or three levels of them, started blinking. We had to stop the game because of this flashing light in the outfield. And uh, we had other headaches uh, through the construction process. We had to move our front offices across the freeway to Oakport Street because the offices were getting inundated with tractor exhaust um, and machine exhaust in, in uh, pile driving or, or moving cement around. So yeah, you know, it was a big change, and and I had nothing against the Raiders coming back, but it really, it really hurt us. As we wind down this this episode and uh, kind of say goodbye to the '90s, I wonder, Moose, if if you knew at the time, Eric Chavez is drafted number one in '96. You got a kid from the Dominican name Miguel Tejada, who's in the big leagues at 23. The next three years, it's Hudson, Mulder, Zito that are drafted in order, and we know, you know what. We know now what was around the corner. What did you know then? Well, I think just starting uh, with uh, Chavez being number one, and he goes to the Cal League at age 19. He was a young draftee, and, and he, he's the youngest guy in the league. He puts up great numbers, so you know he's going to – because that was a high A league at the time. You know he was coming on strong, and Tejada comes up in 97, and you could see that he's going to have power. He hit the ball hard, but he had that short swing. The power was going to come. Ron Washington worked with both those guys. I remember when Shavi uh, came up, we had uh, our regular third baseman that year was uh, Mike Blower, current Seattle broadcaster, and Ed Sprague Jr., who had gotten a trade around the all the All Star break, and they were both third basemen. <laughs> and Ron Washington uh, just told Shavi, "Listen to me. Don't worry about those guys." He just meant, "Don't worry about them." Don't you know? And then Shavi told the papers. He says, "Yeah." Ron Washington told them told me not to worry about what those guys told us. Don't listen to them. And that's not what he meant. And it, it, it set off a real funny situation with Sprig and Blowers versus the rookie Chavez and giving them no end of uh, BS. And uh, But you could see it was coming. Um, <clears throat> the one that surprised us that we didn't know that much about was Hudson. We know Zito was a number one, and so was uh, Mulder. And to get all three of those guys coming together with the – with uh, Jason Jambi already being there and being the experienced guy that he was, uh, you can see that this is a team that was going to make a run for it. We went, went to the playoffs four consecutive years. And we'll, we'll talk about that on the next episode, certainly. Episode number 12 has concluded Memories with Boost. It's every Thursday on A's Cast, on A's Total Access, and you can hear the entire episode, as always, uh, athletics.com slash A's Cast. Boost, always great hearing the stories. This was a fun one. I appreciate it. Always fun, Benny, anytime. 
Steve Bucinich, Memories with Boost, episode number 12. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.